the Mother College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, January 14, 1971, 72. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, Part 2, continuing the study of archaeology and the early church and picking it up at the point where we were discussing the catacombs and the Christian burial in them. Now then, um, Samples of these. The one thing that is very noted in the writing on the Christian burials in the catacombs, as well as other places, is the complete absence of any vindictive spirit. These people who were, many of them, uh, cruelly done to death by their persecutors, and yet uh, they have things like uh, resting in peace and the ark that's on these uh, lambs and lilies and doves and uh, uh, all sorts of olive branches and symbols, palm leaves, uh, symbols of rest and of peace and of love. And the, the whole idea of revenge or uh, wrath against those who had unjustly uh, persecuted them is completely absent from these. And uh, also the um, confident hope of eternal life and the resurrection. And this is in marked contrast to uh, the pagan inscriptions of which uh, Whitebot gives uh, some examples here. Just, uh, let's look at this. Uh, page 156. And sons, the Roman poet could tell us, suns may rise and set again, but for us eternal night remains for sleeping. One of the few things I can quote in Latin. Said no beast, no una longa, dormienda. All right. Now, uh, he, he uh, gives examples here. Cicero's um, irreconcilable grief over the death of his daughter. And um, then some of them are almost frivolous. And page 155, some of the inscriptions uh, on tombs along the Appian Way. Miske vive damisi, a cocktail please for you and me. That's a rather trippant sentiment. Another one, somno I know, in eternal sleep. Another one, what I ate and drank I have with me, what I left I have lost. Wine and lust ruin the Constitution, but they make life farewell. Now, those, needless to say, are not Christian sentiments, not any of them. I want to quote you one from, um, who was it that was killed by the Alka Indians? What was his name? Jim uh, Elliot. In his uh, autobiography, he said, Wouldn't anybody be a fool to be unwilling to exchange what cannot be kept for what cannot be lost? To be unwilling to give up what cannot be kept, namely this world and its goods, for what cannot be lost, which is eternal glory. That's I commend to you. All right, now... Uh, um, let's see, and I want to take up the same thing we had over again. Let's get the right place where we really left it off. Yeah. The low and high estimates of the Christian population of Rome for one generation. Now, this uh, gives some figures, which um, Blakelock says is not a good statistical method, 859, but he gives them anyhow. 
600 miles of galleries, the lowest estimate of the number of graves, 1,750,000. A possible count would be 4 million. This would run for um, two or 300 years, perhaps so. Uh, ten generations of Christians are buried in the catacombs, so that on the second figure, we have a Christian population in and about Rome of 400,000, if we divide 4 million by 10, 400,000 for one generation. On the smaller computation, it would be 175,000 for one generation. Now, he uh, discounts Gibbon's figures as uh, much too low and suggests that uh, page top of page 161, question 174, that uh, the Christian population of Rome at this time were uh, one-fifth of the population of Rome, not merely one-twentieth, one out of five. This is quite amazing that Christianity had made that kind of a gain. Now, Tertullian, at the end of the second century, how many of you acquainted with this gentleman? Tertullian. What was he? Covenant or Orthodox Presbyterian or what? <laughs> Montanist. Yeah, Montanist. And uh, this was a, um, well, a deviant sect from the what was called the Catholic Church, and uh, um, it, it was held to hold some merit. But Tertullian was a um, great out-and-out Christian. He demanded that Christians come clean and make a clean break with everything pagan. He's going to hold on to everything Christian and part company with everything pagan. And if you expect to do this without a credibility gap, you better come clean and do it straight and honest. That was Tertullian. He was pretty strict. But um, he also had the strength that uh, this kind of conviction gives a person. And here's his statement um, before a Roman official that the numbers of Christians were all but a majority in every city. All but a majority. Another place, I think it was Tertullian, said, We are of yesterday, Yet there is no town or city of any size in the Roman world that does not have the graves of the martyr dead. Where you kill one, there are soon ten. Where you kill ten, there are soon a hundred. And where you kill a hundred, there are soon a thousand. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's Tertullian for you. And uh, he was uh, he was very influential in his death. And uh, in spite of some ideas about some things. He was uh, one of the ones that helped to shape the uh, orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. <coughs> all right, now that's Tertullian. All but a majority of every city. Uh, Blakelock points out, he wouldn't have dared to make that statement in front of a Roman official unless it were true. He would have been called on it and it would have only got him in trouble. And the fact that he dared to say that uh, when, let's say, uh, sort of on the carpet before a Roman official would seem to be prima uh, facie evidence that the statement uh, was recognized as true, all but a majority. This would be a minority, of course, but uh, a minority approaching the 50% mark of every city. Now, so much for the uh, horizontal spread of Christianity, how far, how far they go, you see. And um, now the vertical spread of Christianity, 176, what class or classes of people were the Christians drawn from? Paul said, you recall, not many wise, not many noble, and so forth are called, but God has called the 
foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to bring to naught the things that are mighty, and so on. Uh, is it true that um, most Christians are relatively insignificant, humble, and unknown people? Abraham Lincoln, you know, said God loved the common people. Look how many of them he made. Now, <laughs> uh, how about in the early church? Where uh, most of the Christians, let's say, from the ignorant and propertyless and slave classes? Mrs. Wilson? Yeah. Now, if you start with the preaching of Paul, even he, here was um, a judge of, of the Areopagus court in Athens, became a Christian. The uh, uh, officials of some town, the Roman proconsul in Cyprus, and other people of name and note who became Christians, even though I suppose if we'd had a statistical analysis of Paul's converts, most of them would have been humble and obscure folks. But as time went on, Christianity began to influence more and more people of the, uh, let's say, more advantaged classes who became hungry for what only Christianity could give. I think we should realize, you recall the poem I quoted from um, Matthew Arnold. How many of you were not here and didn't hear that that time? I'll give a rerun for three or four that weren't here. Matthew Arnold, a poet of Queen Victoria's day, Pictures a Roman nobleman who is bored with life. On that hard pagan world, disgust and secret loathing fell. Deep weariness and fated lust made human life a hell. In his cool hall with haggard eyes, the Roman noble lay. He rode abroad in curious guise along the Appian Way. He bade a feast, drank fierce and fast, and crowned his head with flowers. No easier, nor no quicker, past the impracticable hours, boredom, ennui, or uh, weariness of life. And at the same time, there was, along with this, great disillusionment about the old religion. All that stuff about Jupiter and Juno, you know, and Apollo <coughs> and Venus, and so forth. Um, it's pretty well uh, been given up, except by the most ignorant of the people, and philosophy likewise had run its course and come down to a, an abysmal and unsatisfying skepticism. And what is there in life for a person then that makes life satisfying and worth living? And here comes a religion, first the Jewish faith, and then on its heels a little later the Christian faith, with a reasonable belief in one God, a sure hope for victory over death and a life eternal beyond the grave. Um, Let's say a, a cheerful, outgoing, optimistic attitude toward life because of its conviction of the love and favor of God. And when it is taken seriously, it produces optimism out of the ashes of pessimism. Christianity produces optimism where Bible Christianity is taken seriously. And so it did. And in a society where slavery was widespread and suicide was common and despair was the keynote, here comes the ray of light. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce's book, The Spreading Flame on the History of Early Christianity, same one who wrote the book on Acts that some students have seen, um, his colleague. <clears throat> um, his first chapter is A Light Shown in the Darkness. Second chapter title, The Darkness Did Not Put It Out. 
And this is the truth. The light shone in the darkness. Let me tell you, it was a dark, dark world that the light of Christianity began to shine in. And as the darkness didn't put it out, it began to get bigger and to flame up. And so we have prominent people becoming Christians. And uh, even Paul speaks of those of Caesar's household. So um, you could say uh, there were various prominent people and uh, Blakelock and James Orr, a Christ writer of the generation ago, editor of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, held that it is incorrect to say that uh, the early Christians in, the, in Rome and in the Roman world were simply the down and out, that there were people of culture and of wealth and education and status who grasped at this new faith and clung to it because it gave them something that uh, neither paganism nor nor the philosophy was able to give. Now, um, these examples, 177, and several of them listed in here, even the names of some of them given. Um, some were accused of um, being Christians. Does it strike you as strange that one of the charges against the early Christians was that they were atheists? This strikes us as rather, rather strange. This was one of the charges. Down with the atheists. Throw the atheists to the lion. Why would they call the Christians atheists, Mr. Eric? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear these Christians, they believe in an invisible God who is a transcendent spirit. You can't see him uh, with your senses. And so they are said to be atheists from the standpoint of the pagan believers and people of that day, atheism. And another charge was that they were haters of the human race. The Christians, the only people who would go out and look after sick victims of an epidemic of plague or something like that at the risk of their own lives. They would do this out of love and compassion and were called haters of the human race. Now, why would they call Christians haters of the human race? Well, Paul says in one place, and I can't tell you off the top of my head where it is, one of his epistles, that they think it's strange that you do not go to the same excessive riot with them. Recall that? Something like that? think it's strange. Maybe that's in Peter's, one of Peter's epistles. Anyway, Christians would not go to the arena and watch people battle wild animals to the death. Or people versus people, gladiators. St. Augustine had enjoyed this kind of spectacle. And then he got under deep conviction about it and realized it was wicked and sinful and decided he wouldn't go anymore. And before his conversion, a friend got him to go and he sat there with his hand over his face so he couldn't watch. And then somebody down there on the field let out a terrible scream and he pulled his hand down and looked and watched the rest of the show and the next show and the one after that for quite a while afterwards. Now, the Christians wouldn't go to these things and the debauched and depraved and, and even unnatural pleasures of the pagan Roman world, the Christians reacted against and... Uh, not only felt no need for that kind of satisfaction, but were horrified and revolted by it. And this, of course, um, looked to the pagan population as if these Christians are putting on a holier-than-thou attitude, claiming to be better than we are and so forth, so they call them haters of the human race. Now, uh, uh, we'll uh, leave that at this point and take up Mithraism. Mithraism. 
the only serious rival of Christianity among all of the mystery religions, the Eleusinian and the Orthic and the Dionysiac and you name it, the half dozen others, that of Isis and Osiris, etc., etc. All of them died. None of them could stand up as a serious rival of Christianity. But Mithraism is pretty nearly dead. And um, it uh, later, however, uh, failed completely. See, does he quote to hear the, the Roman uh, centurion on the... Yeah, page 168. This is question 183. We'll go back to that above in a minute. This is Rudyard Kipling. Uh, wrote the Jungle Book and so forth. And the recessional, that's the poem, God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Know the history of that? It had a diamond jubilee of the British Empire in London, Queen Victoria's Day, I believe. And um, big shots from all over the world had attended this for quite a while. The boast was, uh, we hold a greater empire than it's been, and the sun never sets on the British Empire. And then it was all over. And the next day, in the little square box on the front page of the London Times, with just a little black line around it, appeared this poem by Kipling. The tumult and the shouting died. The captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart, and so on. That's Kipling. Now, I don't know whether Kipling was, uh, if we would call an evangelical Christian or not, but that poem is, uh, he, he called them the time for their pride by that poem. This is also Kipling. He pictures uh, uh, the Roman wall across the island of Britain and the soldiers standing on it and comes time to blow the trumpet for a revelry to get up in the morning and he sings a hymn or a, a song to Mithra. Persian sun god, which was originally sun worship and it came from far away Iran. <coughs> Mithra, god of the morning, our trumpets waken the wall. Rome is above the nations, but thou art over all. Now as the names are answered and the guards are marched away, Mithras, also a soldier, give us strength for the day. Mithras. All right, now uh, um, let's see. Um, what was the finding, 179, that proves that Mithraism existed in what is today England or Britain? What did they find it, Mr. James, you know? Yeah, they found a shrine, a little, little temple to Mithras underground. This is the place that was bombed heavily during World War II, and it was not possible to rebuild adequately while the war was going on, so they put up a big hoarding of boards around it to keep people from falling in there and just left it. Strangely to, strange to say, the next year it sprang up with wildflowers of kinds that uh, nobody around ever seen. A very strange thing. People came and peeked those peak holes in the boards to see those flowers. Where the seeds came from or anything, that's a horticulturalist uh, detective story. But anyhow, um, when they came after the war to really reconstruct it, they cleared everything to build new apartment houses or something on it, and they went way down. You realize that the streets of present-day London are about 20 to 30 feet above the streets of London in Roman times. Debris has raised them up that high. You go into one or two really old churches by going down to what used to be the ground level, like you were going into a basement. So they cleared this. 
and here uh, underground, people have been walking around on it, you know, and ringing up cash registers and everything for a long time. Never, never knew there was a temple to Mithras underneath where their where their uh, houses and buildings had been, and uh, it was discovered in uh, 1954 and right near St Paul's Cathedral of the Anglican Church in London, a little shrine of Mithras, the Persian god of the sun. This had been suspected, but it had not been known to exist. Uh, <clears throat> now then, the origin and the character of Mithraism, what's the difference between uh, being a Mithraist and being a Christian? Mr. Brown, or is this the same thing? <laughs> of course it isn't. All right, what's the difference? Well, it's everybody I mean what God was. Yeah. God is certainly not Christianity. Now, on the other hand, was there anything about Mithraism which would make it appeal to people? Well, um, evidently it did. It became very popular and probably was brought to England by the Roman army. Mithraism was a soldier's religion. It was um, it rivaled Christianity in the legions of the Roman army for quite a while. And uh, they were lined up. They were Mithraists or they were Christians. And, of course, a few others. But uh, it was a soldier's religion and a man's religion. Now, um, they found uh, 181 other evidence in England of uh, two or three other places of shrines uh, dedicated or little temples dedicated to Mithras. And um, two have been found along the Roman wall. Um, mentioned here at page 167, question 182. And so there was good evidence that Mithraism was well established in England about the same time that Christianity was. Now, uh, God of Light. I remember Professor of R.B. Kuyper at Westminster Theological Seminary said once to a class, gentlemen, I'm a Christian, but if I weren't and had my choice of all the other available options, I would prefer to be a sun worshiper. That there is something noble about sun worship. Uh, in preference to worshiping cats, crocodiles, caterpillars, earthworms, and so forth, that some people have, turtles, you know. And after all, human life, uh, of course, we recognize uh, it's dependent on God, but under God, human life is dependent on the sun. If the sun would wink out, uh, how long, Mr. Betty, would we be able to continue in, in, in our life here? Uh, we'd soon be in the deep freeze if the sun would wink out. It wouldn't take long, I can tell you. And uh, so, uh, sun worship, there is something um, wrong, of course, but there's something appealing about it, and it's easy to see if a person doesn't have something better, how this would uh, appeal to them, and they would seem to think this was really uh, a man's religion. So, uh, this was strongly set, uh, worshiping the sun, and then worshiping Mithras, who personified the sun. And then there were various other myths and so forth connected with Mithras. Now, 184, um, what does he say in here about Christmas? <laughs> Mrs. Johnson? Yeah, uh, December 25. Now, is that really Jesus' birthday? I hate to smash somebody's dreams, but uh, it's the dreaming of a white Christmas, you know, and everything, but um, I'm afraid the evidence is again as far as uh, December 25 being an authentic birthday of Jesus. In the first place, the shepherds were in the fields watching their flocks, which they would be unlikely to be doing in the middle of winter. 
and uh, therefore it is unlikely that the birth of Jesus was in December or December 25. And as a matter of fact, this date and this good historical authentic evidence for this is um, the birthday of Mithras. And uh, the Christian church, let's say, uh, won out over Mithraism and captured this uh, date and took it over so that it became connected with the idea of the birth of Christ. He mentioned here this thing about the shepherds as being against December 25th being the birthday of Jesus. And um, December 25th was not only uh, the birthday of Mithras, but the Saturnalia. Now, was the Saturnalia a puritanical sort of uh, revival meeting? Well, Mr. Betty's nothing about it. Well... I can tell you that Saturnalia was pretty awful, with the moral brick pretty well turned off, and um, I think that uh, the, um, what's this they have in New Orleans? Mardi? Yeah, Mardi Gras, and the Satan worship of Los Angeles, and the three or four other things like this. You put them together, this would be characteristic of the Saturnalia. It was the time for getting drunk and... Um, going on a moral binge and uh, just about doing just about anything. That was the Saturnalia. And this is the date that has become associated with Christmas. Well, we can't make this be over again, but we're thinking about it. Now, uh, he points out here, 185, that there's no reason to say that Mithraism really contributed anything to Christianity. The elements were merely formal. They had something that all, um, in a way, resembled our communion service, sacramental meal. And um, then there was this date, and um, perhaps some features of worship or singing that would be somewhat similar. In 1971, there the resemblance ends. Now then, uh, what were the reasons why Christianity won out and Mithraism lost out? You don't find many churches of Mithraism going around today, either in England or anywhere else. Why did Mithraism die out and Christianity survive? Now, of course, you could answer that very uh, simplistically by saying uh, the power of God keeps Christianity alive. And this is true, of course, but maybe you could give more reasons than that. Today. Well, Christianity has a different record of their past all right, here's two things. Christianity had a Bible that Mithraism didn't have, a body of, um, of documents, of written records that um, were of tremendous uh, effectiveness in propagating this new faith. Just as we find today, somebody who's all mixed up, if you can get them to sit down and read the Bible, really to sit down and read it, read through the Gospel of John, for example, they are confronted with the claims of Christ and uh, maybe at least will become a Christian. It doesn't always uh, happen completely so, but um, it's often that way. I know more people that have been converted to reading the Bible almost in, in any other way. So this is one thing. And another thing, um, that um, Christianity had an element of universalism, that is, it's for all classes of people, for, for everywhere, uh, Mithraism was rather exclusive. Now, um, uh, he brings this out here, uh, second half, page 171. Mithraism was for men only. 
Christianity brought a charter of freedom for women, children, slaves, and outcasts. It had food for the hungriest heart. Uh, you can see why a religion for men only would appeal to Roman soldiers, maybe. Sort of um, build them up from their ego a little bit, but um, after all, half the world are women. And uh, all the world have been children at one time. And therefore, a religion that has no real place for women and children, not to mention the unfortunate and the, let's say, the um, downtrodden and underprivileged, has not got what it takes to conquer the world. And Christianity, of course, had it. Now, uh, uh, would it be easy, do you think, Mr. Eric, to become a full-fledged member of the Mithraist religion? What they do to you? Uh, they initiate you. Uh, do people get hurt getting initiated into fraternities or sororities in colleges that have them? Sometimes, well, every once in a while you read about a death of somebody caused by something like this. Uh, we don't have any fraternities or sororities at Geneva. Would you like to have them started here? Across from Westminster College was bursting here and he asked one of our professors, said, you don't have fraternities or sororities? Nope. Well, count your blessings and don't get any. They are an unmitigated headache. <laughs> uh, they're nice if you're up in the top brackets, but what do you say to the fellow or the girl? I think girls especially are heartbroken if they don't get into a sorority of their choice. What do you say to somebody whose life has been ruined by not making it back to, to getting into a sorority? Uh, this promotes a certain kind of uh, snobbishness, maybe, and uh, certain kinds of people they will not take. The Jews often find it hard to get in, Negroes find it hard to get in, uh, impossible perhaps. And um, well, anyhow, we're not going to get in. Did you know that once they had two sororities and one fraternity at Geneva secretly? This was many years ago, about the time when you were drinking milk out of bottles, but couldn't. <laughs> Uh, each of these had a clause in the Constitution of it which said if anybody ever asks you are you a member of a sorority or fraternity you are automatically expelled from membership for 30 minutes so you could honestly say you were not a member <laughs> and uh, this uh, interesting but really dishonest gimmick became known so then the administration would ask if not are you a member of a sorority, but uh, were you a member of one yesterday about this time? <laughs> and kept them on that. All right, Mithraism had this very rigid uh, series of initiations. And you get to be a top-flight Mithraist, you've had it. And you've been uh, given the work. And some of this was, was even physically um, pretty bad. They put you in a stone coffin for a while and... <coughs> And then there's an ordeal of heat and so on, and uh, you get scorched, and uh, this is symbolizing the heat of the sun, of course, but time you get to be a Mithraist, you've really uh, you've committed yourself pretty well. Now, uh, this, he says, was more like a secret society than a faith. Question 186. What uh, Christian beliefs were conspicuously absent from Mithraism? Well, Mr. Bay, salvation by faith, and um, let's say the deepest yearnings of man, he says here, repentance, faith, brotherly love, is the outside of its teachings. 
<coughs> well, is the world the poorer because mysticism died out? Christianity hasn't always been what it should be, but, uh, you know, when people tell us that Christianity has failed, some of you have had that book by Craig in the teachings of Jesus, of course, Jesus of yesterday and today, and Craig says, Samuel Craig, in that book says, when people say Christianity has failed, they're not putting it to a fair test. Uh, to test whether Christianity has failed or not, you should compare the places in the world where Christianity has been influential, more or less, with those places where it is relatively unknown. And you'll see a tremendous contrast. How uh, the unfortunate are treated, for example. And then you should compare the relatively Christian presence, poor as it is, but what it is, for what it is, with the pre-Christian past. And then you can see whether Christianity has done anything for us, really, or not. And this is true. Now, love and compassion, far short as we all fall, we wouldn't be even where we are if it were not for Christianity and Jesus Christ. And we would be back on that hard pagan world where human life became a hell if it were not for the light and the comfort and the joy and the love and the pity that Christianity has brought into human life. So, um, here is, he says, the great cross above St. Paul's Cathedral towers up there visible for a long way around above the place, or just a little bit away from and above the place where the shrine of Mithras was buried 20, 30 feet underground for many, many centuries. And the Mithras, let's say, uh, is dead and buried and had to be dug up by the archaeologists, whereas Christianity is still above ground. Now then, um, any more questions up to the end of chapter 11 before we take up the one about the fate of Palestine? Yeah, Mr. Wilson. Uh, you well, no, you see, it was a secret organization, the members of which were pledged by an oath not to tell what the rights were. Now, it's uh, naturally, on the face of it, hard to get information about a thing of this kind. I don't know that they do know everything about it. Now, mysticism existed not only in England, but it has been traced from where it came from. It was in Persia and in the Near East and later in Europe and finally in the British Isles. And uh, probably it was the Roman army that spread it to, to the west like that. But um, the basic features of it are certainly known. But what all the rights were, I don't know. Uh, does it, um, not sure Christian, you're above this kind of thing, but does it give people who aren't Christians a feeling of uh, building up their ego if they can belong to an in-group that excludes some other people? Is that under Mr. Harris? That's true to, true to human nature? I'm not saying it's right, you know, but it's true to life. You belong to an in-group. Even kids playing around will do this. Three or four boys will get and make a little uh, cabin out of packing boxes at the edge of the woods down here, maybe by the, beyond the ballpark or something, and nobody will get that in there that doesn't know their password. They'll play it just for one summer, and, and after that, why, it will be abandoned and forgotten. Uh, all these mystery religions had rights, which were, some of them, more or less terrible. There was one that you stood them. Uh, dark naked incidentally in a place and they had a grating over your head and you got a shower bath of warm bull's blood from the bull that was being slaughtered uh, and blood draining through uh, in a higher level above your head. A shower bath of taurobolium of bull's blood. Uh, 
they wouldn't care for this. But the people that had been through this, they, uh, ah, I'm not like you. I've been through the Tarabolium. <laughs> and they could, uh, they could feel uh, that they had something on account of this. All right, any more questions on the chapter 11? Chapter 12, Archaeology and the Fate of Palestine. Now, this starts out with the Roman Colosseum, and there's a picture of it given on the next page. This was built in the uh, later Roman Empire, <coughs> latter part of the first century. Part of it was built for two levels. What's the condition of it today? Well, uh, last I heard, the Colosseum is in bad shape. And uh, you see, it was plundered for stone for considerable time in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance period. And this left cracks where water can work in, and then when it freezes, it expands and pushes the stones further apart. So there's been a lot of this kind of damage in the Colosseum. Although it's made of tremendous blocks of stone and uh, massive, you'd think that just weight would hold it there till the end of the world, but water gets in and freezes, and can, uh, the, the expansion of this can move tremendous rocks and big blocks of stone. And this kind of damage um, isn't immediately visible to passers-by. It takes uh, careful inspection by engineers to detect this sort of thing. And here they find out suddenly the Colosseum is in some danger of collapsing. And I believe that uh, they're probably going to have to pay more money to put in steel uh, bars to support it and this and that than it cost to build it in the first place. Just like that movie of the Ten Commandments cost more to make than it cost Moses to bring the real Israelites out of Egypt to the borders of the Promised Land. What inflation does for you. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's the Colosseum. Now, um, uh, he gives the running commentary on the Roman Colosseum. Now, what was this building used for? Mrs. Wilson, what was it? Uh, it was like chairs and Yeah, people sat around and was it, was it Ben-Hur that had the chariot race in the Colosseum and the people up on the, on the bleachers on the seats and making bets and placing wagers and so forth and uh, gentlemen of leisure sitting up there and so on uh, quite a show alright this was also the place where the early Christians were tortured to death in combat with wild animals and so forth and, uh, they would uh, throw somebody up in a sack and turn them loose on this field and turn a hungry uh, wild boar loose on them things of this sort, brutal and, and fiendish beyond belief. And this was done in the Colosseum. Now, um, what was the date when Jerusalem fell to the Romans? Mr. Thompson, uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans? Yeah. It didn't? Yeah, it did. It did. 87, all right. 68 to 70 was the war, and the Romans won it completely in the year 70. And the Colosseum was built in... Uh, following 10 years here. Two levels opened in A.D. 79. So Jerusalem fell in the year 70 and the Colosseum was built in the 70s of the first century. That is, the lower part of it was. Not the, not the whole thing. And um, Blakeloff points out here, 188, that <clears throat> very probably a great part of the very uh, arduous physical labor of building this thing was done by captive Jews. <coughs> not the ones that were killed, but the ones that were captured alive and taken to Rome to slavery. Now, there's an interesting little point here about the golden candlestick, the seven-branched golden candlestick from the Jerusalem temple. 
This is pictured on the Arch of Titus. You look at that photo at the uh, bottom, uh, opposite page 178, and there you can see it. See, in the book of Revelation, it speaks of Christ walking around among the seven golden candlesticks, the lampstands. Seven, the perfect number. And it stood for the uh, presence of God, I guess, among his people. Well, that's going to be kind of quick in a minute. But the interesting thing, the Romans captured this when they captured Jerusalem. Just the gold in that be worth a small fortune. And here on the Arch of Titus, it is pictured. And what happened to it in the end? Well, 410, the Goths captured Rome. Alaric, the Goths. And they captured this, and Alaric died, and they wanted to bury him where no Roman could ever find his grave. So they diverted the Bucento River and dug a hole in the riverbed and buried him there with his armor and this golden candlestick, among other things, then turned the river back. So this golden candlestick is almost certainly somewhere underneath the water of this relatively small river in central Italy, the Bucento. The poem about it in German. Next, we come. How many of you know German? Well, I won't be sad. Nobody knows it. But uh, they, they buried Alaric there with, and they buried this with him, and that's what happened to the golden candlestick from the Jerusalem temple. His gods were quite innocent of the cultural values of all these things. They were a rough and ready bunch. All right, so now then, uh, we have class Monday and Wednesday, and on this material that I gave you, there's uh, some material on uh, New Testament manuscripts and uh, a list of references which I, please note, do not expect you to read. I just thought you'd like to have it in your syllabus for some future time, maybe, but... What you need to know about these New Testament manuscripts is right here on page 20 and 21. If you get a hold of that, well, you've got it. Okay?